All right, I want to know how many of you have ever had this experience. It may be just me. I'm okay with that. Uh, I've learned that I'm somewhat strange. But have you ever had the experience where you're sitting down and you're watching some sort of action movie, and it's set in an earlier time period? Maybe like it's a Civil War movie, or maybe you're watching something, a movie like Braveheart or something from the Middle Ages, or maybe it's some sort of movie from ancient Rome, that kind of time period. And you're watching the movie, and maybe there's some scene in the movie or something where the enemy hordes are sort of in mass advancing against the good guys, and there's not a lot of good guys, and they're clearly going to be captured, and things are not going to go well. Have you ever had the thought, if I could just show up there right now with a machine gun, like I could just... I could wipe them all out all at once. Has anyone else ever watched a movie and had that? Yeah, okay. That's good. <clears throat> or maybe you've not wanted to kill anybody. Uh, have you ever had the idea if we could just sort of take technology and the knowledge we have today and sort of go back in time with that? that you could be, you'd be like super powerful. Like people would think that you were a magician or something because you could do all this amazing stuff. I mean, that's, it's actually the storyline from Mark Twain's book, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. It's the idea of this 19th century weapons manufacturer who goes back in time to the time of King Arthur and he takes all of his, well then, modern knowledge about weapons and about uh, economics and politics and all of those things and uses it to help defeat all the enemies of the realm and set himself up as a powerful ruler. And I think, man, that's a, I sometimes think that, like it would be great to have sort of futuristic weapons and technology available to us. Now, the reason I bring that up is because not just sort of from movies or ideas or stories, but that idea of having weapons from the future available today, it's not just sort of the stuff of science fiction. The idea is actually rooted in the scriptures. Let me show you this passage in Romans chapter 13 when Paul is writing to the church at Rome. He says, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now catch what this is saying. We've been talking together about the armor of God. In Ephesians 6 it's spelled out. In Romans 13 it's simply called the armor of light. But it's the same stuff. But notice what he's saying. Where we live right now is night. Day is coming. Salvation is going to dawn. Christ will appear and he will come. And when he comes, it will be the dawn of the eternal new day. And we're looking forward to that. And that day is nearer now than when we first started to believe. But it's not here yet. But notice what he says. We live in the night but we're instructed to put on the armor of light. That belongs to the coming day. It's the armor of the future that we're supposed to put on today. Here's the idea is, is that 
We've been talking about the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel boots of community, the shield of faith. We've talked about so far. The reason why this armor is so powerful is because it's actually from the future. It's actually from the future. And just like if a few of us showed up sometime in the past with assault rifles and Kevlar vests and armored tanks, we could wipe out entire Roman legions because of the power of these futuristic weapons. So it is that you and I, dressed in the armor of the future, are able to stand against Satan and his demonic hordes without any problem today. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, that guy's seen one too many time-traveling movies. <laughs> Before you think I've sort of drifted off into Never Never Land, what I want to do is I want to try to explain how this armor that we've been talking about in Ephesians 6 is actually from the future and how that makes a difference in how we use it today. So take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, it's page 830 in the Bible that's either underneath your seat or in the rack in front of you if you need one to follow along. Page 830, we're talking this summer about spiritual warfare and if I was going to give you a simple definition for spiritual warfare, it is this. Every single one of us, every moment of every day are in a battle. That's spiritual warfare. It's the recognition that every single one of us, every single moment of every day is in a battle against the evil one. And in Ephesians 6, we have been given, God says, armor so that we can stand. This armor I'd like to show you is actually from the future, which allows us to have strength and power in the present and that truth is uniquely connected with this fifth piece of armor we're going to look at this morning. It's in chapter 6, the first phrase of verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. And what I want to do this morning is, first of all, discuss the notion of helmet and then show how recognizing that it comes from the future has great power for us today. Now we have an example of a helmet up here on the platform. The helmet is designed to protect the head, right. <clears throat> Metaphorically speaking, we would think about the helmet protecting the mind <clears throat> or the brain. Now as it's been with each of the pieces of armor, they are specifically designed to counteract an aspect of our enemy. So Satan is the deceiver, therefore God has given us the belt of truth. <clears throat> Satan is the tempter, so God has given us the breastplate of righteousness. Satan seeks to isolate us, so God has given us the gospel boots of community. Satan is our adversary 
who hurls fiery arrows at us, so God has given us the shield of faith. Each one of these pieces is designed to counteract something that's true about our enemy. But not only is Satan a deceiver, an attempter, one who isolates us, one who attacks us, he is also the one who accuses us. And the helmet is designed to protect us against his accusations. Satan is constantly accusing us, bombarding our minds with accusations like, you're never going to amount to anything in this Christian life. Accusations like, if you were a better parent, if you had done a better job raising your kids, they wouldn't have turned out this way. Accusations like, if you were a more beautiful and attentive wife, then your husband would not be neglecting you right now. Accusations like, you're a terrible leader. If you were a good leader, your small group wouldn't be going through these problems, but you're horrible at this job. Accusations like, you're damaged goods. Nobody could ever love you or want you. Accusations like, are you still struggling with overeating? You've been struggling with that all your life. You're always going to be struggling with that. Those kinds of accusations, that's what Satan does. He bombards our minds with these sorts of things and he's constantly coming after us, accusing us in every different way of being failures, of being losers, of being sinners, of being inept, of being powerless, of being weak. It's these accusations that he assails our mind with that God says, I've given you a helmet to protect you from. Now, how does that work? Well, notice it's the helmet of salvation. How does the helmet of salvation protect our minds from the accusations that Satan levels against us? Well, the phrase helmet of salvation is used one other time in the New Testament, and it's used by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There he says, but since we belong to the day, this passage tied with the Romans 13 passage, tied with the Ephesians 6 passage, they're all connected. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what he's saying. It's the hope of salvation that's a helmet. The idea that we have not been appointed to suffer wrath, that our future is not going to be one in which we experience God's wrath. Rather, it's one in which God comes to save us. So the helmet of salvation is the notion or the idea God's coming to save me. That when Satan accuses us of being failures as being a Christian, the helmet of salvation says, but God's coming to save me. When Satan accuses us of being a terrible parent and having our kids turn out this way, the helmet of salvation says, but God's coming to rescue my children. The helmet of salvation says when Satan accuses us of being unlovely, 
or unlovable. The helmet of salvation says, but God's coming to save me. He's coming to rescue me. See, there's one thing that Satan can't control. He can't control the future. He can dredge up the past. He can attack you in the present. But he's powerless to control the future. God is the one who controls the future. And the accusation that you failed as a parent is useless in the light, but God can still come and change things. God will still come and rescue me. The accusation that you have done so many unforgivable things in the past is useless in light of the fact that God's coming to save me in the future. You see, the past and the present do not determine the future. God does. The past and the present do not determine the future. God does. And when God comes to rescue, everything that's happened in the past, everything that's happened in the present is immaterial because he comes to save. Have you ever had the experience where you're watching a football game that you already know the final score for? This happened to me last year. The Michigan-Notre Dame game was on Saturday night. I'm not happy with Dave Brandon putting some of these night games because the problem is, is Saturday night, that's the time I'm supposed to be preparing for my sermons and praying and getting ready. And I got to tell you, like with the Michigan-Alabama game this year, the Michigan-Notre Dame game last year, there's this strong temptation to sort of cut short the preparation and watch the game. Now, by God's grace, last year... I did not give in to temptation. Uh, I spent the time praying and preparing. But I was going to watch the game on replay the next day, Sunday. Now, it's impossible to be the pastor of a church with 4,000 people and not find out what the score (laughs) of the Michigan game is. So I sat down last year to watch the Michigan-Notre Dame gaming, knowing full well that Michigan wins this game in the end. And I got to tell you, it is a lot less stressful to watch a game when you know how it's going to end. Like when Michigan's down 24-7 in the third quarter, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how this is going to work, but they got to win this game. At some point, this offense has got to do something that's going to score them some points. So I don't know, but we are going to win this game. That's the helmet of salvation. I don't know exactly how we're going to get there, But I know how this story ends. This story ends when God comes and saves us. And yes, the details haven't worked themselves all out. I don't know what all the hills and the valleys are going to be, but I know the final score of the game. And when Satan comes and accuses us and says that you've been a miserable failure in your Christian life, our response is to say, yes, I may have failed at certain points, but that's not how this story ends. This story ends with me clothed in Christ's righteousness, in his beauty and in his grace. When Satan comes and accuses us of having done things that God could never accept us for, the helmet of salvation is the realization that maybe how we got here so far, 
But that's not how this game ends. The game ends with me standing conformed to the image of Christ in God's presence. That's how this game... You want to know the final score of our contest against the evil one? The final score is given in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's how this game ends. Now, I don't know what all the details are. I don't know how many points he's going to score. I don't know how many points we're going to score. But the end of the contest is that God will crush Satan underneath our feet. And the armor that we will be wearing on that day is this. This is the armor that we will be wearing on that day in the future. And that becomes a helmet that protects our minds from every accusation. Because the point of these accusations is they are designed to cause us to lose hope in the future. After all, if all we've ever done is struggle with overeating, well, what hope is there for us? If all our past life has been struggling with lust, what hope is there? If all we are going to do is be a failure, what hope is there? If we've done a bad job as parenting, what hope is there for us in the future? Satan accuses us to tell us there's no hope for the future. God counters that by saying, I've already written the future. You don't own the future, it's mine. And I'm coming to rescue you. Now there's one more thing you've got to understand about the helmet of salvation. Not only is it the helmet that we will be wearing in the future when God crushes Satan underneath our feet. It's also the helmet that's available to us today. And this is where that whole idea about the future and weapons from the future coming into the present to help us overcome the evil one comes to grips. So in Ephesians, the word salvation is used one other time, the noun in the book. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn over a couple of pages and let's look at that passage. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There's our word. Now notice what Paul says. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What Paul is saying here is is that that future victory in which we stand with Satan crushed beneath our feet because of the God of peace, that future victory which is coming, God has already given us a deposit and a down payment on that future promise. Now when we talk about future, 
coming into the present, that sounds like the stuff of science fiction and time-traveling movies. But there is a very real way that the future can be brought into the present. It's the mechanism of promise. Promise brings the future into the present. Let me illustrate. Imagine a young couple. They've been dating for a while. While they're dating, they're still, for the most part, planning their life separately. Each one's thinking about graduate school, maybe, or jobs, or where to live, and they are sort of planning their lives separately. But the moment the phrase or the question, will you marry me, is posed, and the answer, yes, is given, everything changes radically at that moment. Suddenly, this couple, which had been planning their futures separately, start to plan them together. Maybe they begin to combine their finances into one account. Maybe they start to ask for different presents from parents and family for birthdays or graduations based on their future life together. Maybe they even go around looking for some new friends who are already married. Well, what's happening? Their future married life has begun to break into the present. That just a week before they may have been simply dating. But once the promise is made, I'm going to marry you and you're going to marry me, this brings their future life to some extent into the present. Now, they're not technically married yet. But you've seen engaged couples. They begin to act more like married couples. The future is being brought into the present. That's what promise does. If you were going to promise your children that you were going to take them to Disney World for spring break next year, and let's say that you are the kind of person who keeps your promises, if you promised your children you're going to take them to Disney World, do you think they would wait until next March to be happy and excited? No, that future joy would begin to happen now Promise brings the future into the present. Imagine that you told your company that you're going to be retiring next year. The moment you say those words, your company will begin to treat you as if you are retired, <laughs> right? And you will begin to treat your job as if you are retired. Am I wrong about that? No, what's happened? You made a promise, and the promise begins to bring your future retired life into the present. That's what promise does. It is a real way in which the future comes into the present. Does that make sense? Now look what God says about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal... The promised Holy Spirit, or literally in Greek it says, the Holy Spirit of promise. What this is, is when God gives us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a down payment on the promise that we are going to stand victorious with Satan crushed beneath our feet. Now what happens 
if you promise something and put down a deposit and then fail to carry through with it, you lose your deposit. Who's the deposit God the Father put down? The Holy Spirit. Can God the Father forfeit the Holy Spirit? No, no, no. This promise is secure. It is unbreakable. And the promise God has made to us is you and I will stand victorious. He will come and save us. And once that promise is made, our future victorious selves begin to break into the present. Yes, we don't have salvation totally and completely yet. Yes, we're still struggling with sin. Yes, we still struggle with failure. Yes, we still struggle with pain and sickness and death. But our future, beautiful, victorious, powerful, conformed to the image of Christ selves begin to break into the present. And the armor that we will be wearing on the day in which Satan is defeated is the armor we begin to wear now. And so when Satan comes and accuses us of being a sinner who is simply unforgivable, to put on the helmet of salvation is to say back to him, but you do not control the future. And I know how this story ends. And this story ends with me standing victorious over you by the grace of God. And because that is my future, I'm going to begin to live in that today. That I am going to believe God's promise of forgiveness today. When Satan accuses us and says, you will never be free from the sin of gossip, our response is to put on the helmet of salvation and say, you don't own the future. God is coming to save me. And because I will not be a gossiper in the future, I'm going to start living that way today. When Satan comes and accuses us and says, all you've ever done is let God down all your life. The helmet of salvation says, but that's not how this story ends. This story ends with me triumphant in God's presence by God's grace. And because that is what my future is, I'm going to begin to live that way today. That future is my future and that promise is true. And that future is now starting today. To put on the helmet of salvation is to realize that when Satan accuses us, he's got no power to follow them up. That when he tells us that because we failed in the past, we will always fail in the future, because we've struggled in the past, we will always struggle in the future, because things are going poorly in the present, they will go poorly in the future, the helmet of salvation is the realization. God has sworn on him very self, that he will come and save me. And I will stand victorious in his power, conformed to the image of Christ, dressed in his righteousness, dressed in his beauty, holy, beautiful, accepted, loved, victorious. And because that is my future, it's going to begin to happen today. It's very fitting that this morning we get to celebrate baptism. I told you a few weeks ago that baptism is an 
integral part of spiritual warfare. But I was honest with you a few weeks ago and said I didn't really know exactly why that was. This week, God taught me why baptism is so important for spiritual warfare. It's because in baptism, it's a way that we put on the helmet of salvation. See, what happens when you stand in the waters of baptism dressed in a white robe and going through a ceremony in which you are put underwater like Christ's death and raised with Christ in new life, the idea is, is this is not just a remembrance of what God has done for us in the past. It's actually a picture of where we will be in the future. That we are going to stand clean and righteous and pure before God. Holy, accepted, and loved. And in baptism, what we're doing is we're owning that future. We're saying, regardless of the things that are currently in my life, regardless of the sins that I've committed in the past, regardless of the bumps and bruises that are coming in the future, I know how this story ends. And this story ends with me dressed in white robes. Clean, and pure and victorious. And in the waters of baptism, we are putting on the helmet of salvation. And it is a strong and mighty defense against the accusations that Satan levels against us. So this morning, as Tom leads us through the ceremony of baptism, let's rejoice together as our brothers and sisters in Christ are celebrating not only what God has done for them and is doing for them, but what he has sworn he will do for them and for us in the future.